We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke chapter 8 tonight. I want to invite you to turn there if you've got your Bibles with you. We've got handouts that have made their way uh, around the room in different places. I think we've still got some here at the front. Uh, if anybody needs to come grab one, you're certainly welcome to do that. You'll see at the top of your handout tonight, I've sort of ripped off the name of an old Twilight Zone episode. Uh, if you ever watched that show a long time ago, there used to be an episode that was called Five Characters in Search of an Exit. Well, I sort of ripped that off tonight, and I'm calling today Three Characters in Search of an, Eric, in search of an Exit. We're going to see, uh, see three different situations, really two of them tied together between this man Jairus and his daughter, but also uh, a lady who has been dealing with difficulty for quite some time. So we come to this passage, and it is really unique in the Gospels. That's really, it's one of, and, and some even believe the only time that we see a true story within a story, an interruption that takes place that makes Jairus's miracle have to hold on. And it's another level of miracle by the time uh, he comes there. And so if you uh, know the story or familiar th with the story, it's really two miracles in one woven into one story. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 8. We're going to begin with verse 40 tonight. And I just invite you to read along with me when, I'm, uh, when I've read through verse 50, excuse me, 56. We will uh, we'll say a word of prayer. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased, and Jesus said, who was it that touched me? And when all denied it, Peter said, master, the crowds surround you and, you're, and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Let's pray together. Father, in our lives, at times we are in a hurry, and at times we are in great need. Uh, Lord, at times we are overwhelmed and discouraged, and perhaps even like those in this passage this evening, we might find ourselves trembling with fear. Uh, Lord, would you call us to the faith that you called Jairus uh, to in this passage, that you called uh, the woman to in this passage? And Father, would you allow faith to weather the storm of fear in our lives? 
And Lord, may we trust and hope and look to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in Luke chapter 8, as I mentioned already. Jesus, you might remember if you were here last week, <laughs> the disciples, <clears throat> bless their hearts, got in a boat, and they crossed this, the, the Sea of Galilee. Uh, when they do that, there's a storm that almost kills them. And as they come up to the other side, when they're there simply on the shore, there's a man who comes up who has been running through the tombs. He uh, more than likely was unclothed. He was crazy. And in our, you know, kind of sense of the definition, they come to find that he's demon-possessed. And it's there that Jesus delivers this man from his demons. Uh, he then, Jesus uh, is met by this man sitting at his feet, listening to what he's saying. And uh, this, this man in the garrison says, I'll follow you. Let me come with you, please. And, uh, and, he, and Jesus says, no, stay here and tell what God has done for you. And so the disciples probably thinking, boy, I'm ready for a break now. Uh, Jesus then gets them back in the boat and they cross back over the Sea of Galilee. Some of you, as, as Pastor Mark mentioned just a moment ago, you're going to get to see the Sea of Galilee, Lord willing, here before too long. And when you get to, to see uh, that, that sea, <laughs> that lake, you'll, uh, you'll be able to see that most of the time you're not looking at a horizon line of water. You can actually see the other side. It would have been possible for the people who had seen Jesus depart to round up more people and to really watch him come back. Imagine the experience for the disciples, whereas they got closer and closer to the shore that they were returning to, they saw that the crowd was bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. I don't know about some of y'all, but I'm not a crowd person. You know, I remember there's been times where I've pulled up at amusement parks and just sort of looked around and said, y'all want to go home? Y'all, how about we just turn the car around right now? I'm not the kind of guy who says relaxation and crowds go together. That's just not my thing. And so, um, you know, if it, vacation for me is, is being in a tent somewhere out on a mountain or something like that. You know, that, that's, that's more my speed. But Jesus comes back, no doubt, exhausted like the rest of the disciples. But as he comes, there's a crowd of people who've been watching him. And there's no escape, you know, for these disciples. They're just having to come right back across to this huge crowd. The crowd meets him there. And uh, the first line you've got there, when Jesus arrives back from the garrisons, a large crowd was waiting. They're there. They're, they're convinced he's not only the person to teach them, but the person to heal them, the, the person to, uh, uh, to just, they want to be in the place where he is. He is uh, a celebrity in our, our understanding of the word in some ways that they are all attracted and wanting to see what he's going to do. And then we come to verse 41 where we meet our first character in the story, a man named uh, Jairus, at least in our English transliteration of that word. If the Greek text had gone straight to English instead of then to Latin and then to older English. Probably the way we would spell Jairus's name is actually Y-A-I-R-O-S. And so to pronounce it sort of somewhere in the ballpark, it would be something like Yairos. But this man who we've traditionally called Jairus or, or, or however you want to say it, you can leave either way and you can be correct tonight, you, however you want to pronounce it. But Jairus comes to Jesus and we are told right off the bat that he is a ruler of the synagogue. Here's a picture of the synagogue that he may have been the ruler of. This is in Capernaum in this area. The white uh, stone that you see in the background was built after the time of Jesus. But these stones here in the foreground in the front of the picture are the foundation of what seems to date to the time of Jesus. And so more than likely, this was the foundation of 
the uh, synagogue in which Jairus was a, a, a ruler, this, this word archon, this, he's the ruler, the head, uh, the leader of the synagogue. Now, you might remember that most of the religious leaders that we meet in the Gospels aren't real keen about Jesus. Now, often they're from Jerusalem. They have ties to the temple. Synagogues were out in, you know, the country. They were the place where people could come and worship without having to go to Jerusalem. And so it wasn't quite the same, but it is unique to see in the Gospels a religious leader. We don't see too many of those who are falling at the feet of Jesus and who are are keen at not only wanting his help, but believing that he can help them. And so Jairus, we don't know exactly what sort of social mores, what kind of social expectations he would have to break in order to seek after Jesus. Have you ever been in a situation where you got scared enough that you quit worrying about what other people think of you? Maybe you're navigating something that was tough enough that maybe, maybe it was time to really consider whether what mama and daddy and grandma and grandpa had told you was exactly right or whether it was time to to look for something else, whether it was time to seek a larger amount of wisdom. We don't even know exactly what Jairus' process here uh, is. The second bullet point I've got there for you, our first character is a man who may have been wrestling between faith and fear. You read John 9 and you see the men or the, the parents of the man born blind when he's healed Uh, They are scared to death to admit that he's their son and that Jesus healed them because they're thinking they're going to get cast out of the synagogue and cast out of their community. And so for Jairus, perhaps the same expectation would be true. He's the leader of the synagogue, and so uh, it would be a great deal for him to lose, but yet he loves his daughter. The parallel passage in Mark, you know, gives us at times details that we don't fully see uh, in Luke, but Luke is unique in telling us in verse 42 that this is his only daughter. And she's about 12 years of age. Now for us, 12 is a child. 12 in that day and time was just about ready to be, you know, given in marriage somewhere. So often at that age, 12 would be the time at least where that betrothal period would start. It's the beginning of almost a stage of adulthood. And so 12 was sort of at the beginning of of leading into that young adult status uh, for this young lady. You know, sometimes the the next line there in that, sometimes when we're desperate, we get to evaluate what's really worth putting faith in. Sometimes when we're desperate, we really get to evaluate what's worth putting faith in. All of a sudden, all the formality and all of the, here's just what you're supposed to do, what you're supposed to believe. When we're desperate, all of a sudden, we're really navigating what is true, why do I believe it's true, who am I willing to trust, who will I put my faith in? And there's a way in which Jairus in the midst of all of that says, you know what, regardless of what people think, regardless of what it's going to mean in my community, regardless of what it's going to cost me, I love my daughter enough to be at the feet of Jesus. And so just like the demoniac who had been roaming the tombs and we're told that he had gotten right with the Lord with that same phrase that he was at the feet of Jesus, now we see Jairus falling at the feet of Jesus in verse 41. And he implored him to come to his house. Do you know what imploring looks like? I'll tell you what it doesn't look like. Hey, uh, Jesus, if you're not doing anything later on, you think you might be willing to come on by? Um, Jesus, uh, yeah, I, I've, I'm, I'd like to take a number here among the rest of the crowd. Maybe when you get done with them, you can come to me. So that's not the word that's used. But imploring, begging, pleading, calling out, making a spectacle perhaps of himself. Have you ever been in a situation where you had to get somebody's attention, but there were so many others around? 
I know every week we get a chance to see that when, when we're trying to leave church. Y'all remember what it was like when you were young and you thought your parents would just never stop talking? Y'all know what that's like? Are we ever going to get to go home? Are we going to do this? Are we going to do that? And just this, you know, I, I, so many times if y'all ever see me in the hallway and I've got a kid, my son will just start whoa, whoa, pulling on that arm, getting me out of, you know, taking me, taking me down the hall. And Jairus is no doubt looking at this sea of people and thinking, how in the world do I get Jesus' attention? How do I get him to, to focus on me in the midst of everybody else? We're not told all the ins and the outs of that, but somehow, some way, Jairus is able to come to Jesus' feet to implore him to come to his house. It probably would have been well known in the community, at least for those who would have been local people, what was going on in his daughter, assuming she's been going through that for a little while. But his daughter is dying, and as Jesus went, at the end of verse 42, we see the people pressed around him. The word that's used in, in these chapters, or excuse me, in these verses here in Luke that, that Luke uses to give us an idea of the crowd, uh, some of the illustrations about being pressed and otherwise, is a word that was usually used in, in one of three ways in that time period. Usually the word was either used to describe a group of prisoners who were all in a small space because people aren't willing to give prisoners as much space, you know, as everybody else. And so perhaps an overcrowded prison or just describing a lot of prisoners in a small space. The second way was describing a siege in a battle. And so a lot of people in a fortress who are surrounded by an army and that fortress is not large enough to sustain them. They are too many people pressed into that small of a space and it's not sustainable. The third is used to describe the process of when you press grapes and you crush them and you get the juice out of them. And so all of these words for pressing describe a over the top, it is further than what it should be a type of pressing. And so the people are crowding around Jesus and he is, uh, I don't know any of you who might be claustrophobic in here, but imagine what it'd be like to just no way out, all these people just everywhere. And so Jairus gets Jesus's attention. And it seems that then Jesus is moving where Jairus is wanting to go. And perhaps his heart is lifted uh, in, in, for just a moment. But then we meet uh, another woman here. Just so I don't skip a blank and have folks upset at me, the third bullet point that you got here. Imagine being in the situation where your only hope is being the one person in a huge crowd that the famous person will pay attention to in a timely fashion. Not only does Jairus have to get Jesus' attention and, and take Jesus where he needs to go at the expense of everyone else, he has to do that on a timetable because his daughter is dying. And in his mind, he has the amount of time left that, that she is, is still drawing breath to get Jesus to go there. And then an interruption. Verse 43, we're introduced to a second character. We don't know her name, uh, but the fourth point that I've got there, our second character is a woman who's had no other source of hope left. She's both physically broken and spiritually outcast from her people. Some Gnostic writers a century or two after the time of Jesus, if you don't know 
who the Gnostics were. They were kind of a cult that came along after uh, the early church was formed. They were trying to sort of piggyback and pull people out of the church in order to believe things that were, were not Christian teachings. But they had all these extra writings that they tagged on biblical names to, Peter, Barnabas, and, and others, that they would, you know, write those books and then tag those names on there so that people would think they were from the apostles. Well, one of those writings named this woman. Her name, they said, was Bernice. <laughs> There's no historical evidence to back that up other than somebody who grabbed a pen two centuries later and decided to write something down. We don't know her name as far as we know. We do know that there was a monument that was built to her in Caesarea Philippi in the early centuries of uh, Christian history to just uh, to, to remember, to memorialize what faith she had and the healing that she was able to experience. But this woman who is unnamed is... Uh, comes close to, to Jesus, and it tells us a few things about her right off the bat. Verse 43, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and she'd spent all her living on physicians, and she could not be healed by anyone. Here's some physician's tools from the ancient world. Y'all ever walked into those places that show what dentists used to use and what, you know, and you think, well, I don't like going to the dentist now, but you walk in that place, you go, boy, I really wouldn't like going to the dentist 100 years ago. Sorry, Joel. That's what, yeah, I'm glad you don't use that stuff, you know. Some of that, and you think, wow, how'd they ever get anybody to sit in a chair to know when that thing was coming? But you've got some ancient tools here. Luke tells us that she had invested a great amount of money in physicians. Mark actually goes further than Luke, and he said that physicians have essentially taken advantage of this woman so that she has been physically and economically broken by what physicians have done to take advantage of her, that there's, there's a way in which she's been manipulated and deceived and, and given promises that didn't come true, and so she's been taken advantage of in a sense that she's got nothing left, no hope left, her physical you know, health is broken. She spent all her living on physicians and she could not be uh, healed by anyone. Now, if you knew the Levitical law, it may come to mind, more than likely this discharge of blood had something to do uh, with a menstrual cycle. It was something that just did not cease. And when you read Levitical law, what you'll see is that someone that is in that process is ceremonially unclean, that they would be restricted from contact with the other people in the community because of the risk of making them ceremonially unclean as well. And so for this woman, it would have been not only an inconvenience, but an embarrassment and something that never ceased for 12 years. You remember early in Luke's gospel where Jesus came to the leper and the leper who fell down at Jesus' feet and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus does this wonderful thing. He not only says, I am willing, be clean, but he reaches out and touches the man. And we've got something similar here. This woman is packed into a crowd of people who if they knew who she was and what she was going through, they'd all be yelling at her to go away so that they're not ceremonially unclean. And certainly the Lord Jesus knows that better than even anybody else in the crowd. But she's able to reach out and she touches the fringe of his garment. Some translations translate this word differently. It could have been either the edge of the garment or it could have been the fringes uh, of the garment that were put there by Levitical law to remind the people of spiritual things, to remind them of God's providence and, and to remind them of, his, uh, them of his sovereignty. And so perhaps she was even touching the spiritual piece, so to speak, of the garment when she reached out to touch the Lord Jesus. There's a, a painting in Magdala that uh, you see here of 
a woman reaching her hand through just in between all of the feet and all of the everything else in the, in the crowd, perhaps even, you know, we're not used to it in this part of the world, but when you watch the news, what you'll tend to see once or twice a year are people who get trampled to death at a soccer game, those kind of things, you know, the, the crowds are dangerous places. And for this woman to reach out and touch the hem of Jesus's garment, the fringe of his garment, we don't know at what risk she was even doing that. And more than likely, she was not a young lady either, that she may very well have been older than Jesus's incarnate existence, that Jesus at this time is a man in his early 30s, uh, from what the text tells us. And in that, you know, she, he is doing his earthly ministry. She may have been older than that uh, as, as she had been dealing with this for some time. But as she came up behind him and touched on the fringe of his garment, immediately her discharge of blood ceased. The fifth point that I've got there for you, Jesus's divine power and his sovereign knowledge are both on display in his interaction with this woman. Jesus's divine power. Now, certainly the son of God knows everything that's going on around him. He's not surprised. He's not caught off guard by her reaching out. And even when he asked the question, who touched me? I believe it's not so much, uh, obviously, to, to get the answer to that question. He knows the answer to that question. But we don't meet this woman the same way unless that discussion takes place. And so as she's healed, we see several things about Jesus, even before we get to what happens afterwards. You know, Philippians chapter 2 teaches that, uh, that, that Jesus emptied himself and came to be obedient to, to death, even death on a cross, that he came to be wrapped in human flesh in our world, that he, he accepted the incarnation out of his humility and his willingness. And when it uses that word emptiness, sometimes through the years, the church has had discussions about whether that meant that Jesus had emptied himself of all of his divinity and his power. Well, I think numerous times in the gospels, you see that that's not the case. Jesus didn't come to simply be fully man, but to be fully man as well as fully God. Colossians chapter one uh, tells us that Jesus is the one who holds all things together. And that didn't cease even with his incarnation, even with him being here among us. And so Jesus's divine power is shown here that as she reaches out, in faith, it's God's will, it's Jesus' will as well, that she be healed. And then he begins to, to ask the question, someone touched me. I perceive that power has gone out from me. Who was it? And the crowd stops. All of a sudden, people go, ooh, hope it wasn't me. Hope it wasn't somebody else. And, and this woman, imagine what her immediate reaction must have been. She wants to be joyful because perhaps it's for the first time she can feel that she's been healed for the first time in years, but the parade stops. And now there's a question of whether to be honest or not. Really interesting, the language that's here in verse 45, Jesus asked, who was it that touched me? And then when all denied it, Peter said, master, the crowd surround you and are pressing in on you. Wouldn't be the last time that denial and Peter go together. But everybody's, everybody's pressing around. What do you mean somebody touched you? Everybody's touching you, Jesus. We're trying to just get through this crowd and survive. Someone touched me for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. 
You ever been shaking scared? The word that's used here for trembling is obviously it's a Greek word where we get our word trembling. The other word that comes out of that is the word tremor for an earthquake. And so it's a, it's a term to describe shaking. I can remember as a sixth grade boy singing a solo in church and I didn't play guitar at that time. And I just stood up and hold, held a microphone, you know, the kind with the cord on it and just sort of tried not to, not to shake too bad. Y'all ever been, any of you ever sang in church, sometimes you're waiting on that soundtrack and you're just thinking, how long is it going to be before the sound man pushes play on that cassette tape? I don't know if I can. But as I was, as I was singing that song to everybody else, this is what I look like. But in my head, what it felt like I was doing was y'all ever see Elvis singing all shook up or something like, whoa, whoa. My legs were just firing left and right. I mean, I was shaking all over the place. I came down from that. I said, I'll never sing in church again, mom. I don't want to hear it. Never, never, never. She said, okay. It wasn't until a while later that I tried to try to do it again. But shaking, shaking scared. She was trembling. The last point on the front of that page, this woman upon being healed and then upon being found out trembles with fear. And this is perhaps a few things that she fears, a fear of Jesus, a fear to hope, and a fear of further condemnation. A fear of Jesus, a fear to hope, and a fear of further condemnation. Have you ever been scared to be optimistic? You know, some of the pessimists, some of the cynical people in, in our world, if you're in here and you sort of struggle with being that way, part of it may be that you're just scared to really hope that something good can happen. If we're not careful, we get fearful to hope. We get fearful to trust. We get fearful to believe that good things can happen. We get fearful to believe that God could come to our aid. Jesus heals this woman. She feels an immediate healing. And probably her first thought is the midst of being called out is, I knew this was too good to be true. I knew it wouldn't last. Any of you ever say that in your head? I knew I couldn't keep feeling this way. I knew it couldn't be this like this. She begins to think, well, now I'm in trouble. What have I done? She falls down before him. Once again, somebody at the feet of Jesus declares in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she'd been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. To a woman who more than likely looked older than he was, he said, daughter, go in peace. Your faith has made you well. And in the midst of her fear, Jesus offered peace. And she didn't lose anything that she had gained, but were able to see her heart because of her being willing to step forward. If you're on the back already, the first point, Jesus responds that her faith has made her well and brought peace. Her faith has made her well and brought peace. You know, those two things go together. Continuously in the gospels, we see it. When we have faith, we'll have peace. Not always perfect and complete peace, but there's going to be a peace that comes with having faith in Jesus that's not found in any other way, not, not found anywhere else. When we're willing to put our trust in Jesus, there's a peace that comes along. Now, we've interrupted the main story to step aside for that moment. We now return to our regularly scheduled program named Jairus. Imagine him. Everybody else is so excited and so, you know, interested in what's just happened. And he's sitting here going... Come on, come on. Yeah, yeah, great. She, okay, okay, we'll hear her story later. We've got to get where we need to go. My only daughter is dying. 
Verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came, said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. It's too late. Jesus is not enough to solve the problem as it exists now. Your reason for faith and belief and hope that Jesus could do anything about it, that time has passed. Second bullet point there, now Jairus has to deal with fear and pain. And Jesus responds that he needs to weather that fear with faith. Jesus, on hearing this, on hearing what they said, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Now, in our life, we aren't given quite the same statement to say for us, well, our faith is always the difference between us getting exactly what we want. For that loved one who deals with a medical difficulty, for whatever it might be, our, our faith is not always Jesus wouldn't be giving a standard once and for all to say, well, anything bad that happens in your life, you must just not have enough faith. What he is saying in this moment, I believe, to Jairus is to say, right now, for what I have planned, your best action is to have faith in me, is to believe, is to walk forward and to, and to step into faith and belief in the midst of, um, of your fear. Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Verse 51 when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. Peter and John and James had no idea what they were about to see. These are some of the homes, uh, remnants of some of the homes in that area as well. Looks a lot like the synagogue, just these foundations of stone that are left behind. There is a mural in uh, Magdala as well about this, you know, as good a guess as some others for what these, these homes in this area would look like. Jesus there with Jairus' daughter and James and John and Peter, the mom and dad. We come to the passage where Jesus is arriving in the outer areas of that. And in that day, um, Wright's funeral home was not yet in service. And so the people who they hired were, uh, were some people called professional mourners. And what they would do is they would go outside and wail and cry and weep for money. I'm not a, I'm not a quick crier. I don't know about some of you, but if, if somebody just said, okay, something, you, you gotta, Jonathan, you got to get some tears here in about two minutes. I'm not sure I could do it. It takes me a while. It takes a lot to get tears. Some of y'all might be in here. Some of you saying, yeah, my husband's just as stone-hearted as you are. So yeah, <laughs> maybe so. But these are folks who were hired to mourn and to weep and to wail, and they were putting on this incredible show of sadness to not only sort of be there for the family, but that also let the entire surrounding community know when you're hearing all this noise, something bad has happened, and uh, someone, someone has been, uh, been lost to death. When Jesus came to the house, verse 51, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James, the father and mother of the child, all who were weeping and all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep for she is not dead, but sleeping. He would say the same thing about Lazarus in John 11. Of course, they didn't understand and their immediate reaction was laughter. How would you feel if somebody was weeping and wailing and their quick transition was then to laughter? Feels a little bit disconnected and inauthentic. Have you ever seen the real old uh, Planet of the Apes movie with Charlton Heston in it? Any of you go back that far? 
Yeah, I know, y'all listen to me. These illustrations, it's like Twilight Zone, Planet of the Apes. I know, I'm an old soul. Charlton Heston and these astronauts land on this planet. They don't know exactly where they are. One of the astronauts has passed away in the little chamber that they were supposed to sleep in, you know, and, and, you know, stay asleep for 200 years or whatever it was. And all of a sudden, you know, she doesn't survive and the spaceship, you know, gets drowned. And so it's just this quick thing of them just trying to survive. Well, the three other astronauts that do survive get to the shore and one astronaut's really broken up about the one astronaut that's, that's, that's dead. And of course, Charlton Heston's character being, you know, just so rich and, and full of mercy, uh, he just says, we don't have time to worry about any of that. You know, we're 2,000 years into the future from where we left. Nobody cares about any of that. We don't need to worry about wasting any time. We need to get, you know, moving. Well, all of a sudden, one of the astronauts takes out this little American flag and just puts it around some stones there by the shoreline. And, and Charlton Heston just gives this weird, bizarre, maniacal laugh. If you ever saw that movie, you might remember that scene where he's laughing at how silly it is to care about somebody's death when you're 2,000 years and in his mind, 100 light years away from where you started. Who cares about any of that? He'd gotten cold and callous all in a moment. And for them, you're able to see that all around the, the group that day, probably what it felt like is all these people weeping and mourning cared for the family. Jesus comes in as an interruption and they think, well, who in the world is this guy? In reality, the mourners and the weepers had no interest, had no connection, no, no true compassion and love for the family, but they were more than, more than likely just ready to laugh at Jesus because to them it was just another day and they didn't understand what Jesus was saying. Do not weep for she's not dead, but sleeping. Next to last point, Jesus probably seemed like a disruption, but he was the greatest friend that Jairus and his family had. Sometimes in our life when we follow Jesus, it seems like he sure is going a different direction than what should be normal, what should feel regular, whatever you know, it may be. There's going to be times that the Lord's going to call on us to have faith and to, ho- to follow him in ways that don't always make sense to those around us. And so Jesus comes into the room where this little girl is no longer alive. Verse 54, Jesus taking her by the hand. Now, interestingly enough, we've got two ladies in this passage, sort of on a little bit on either end of the spectrum. We've got one that's about to begin her adult life. One from the cues that we're given is, is more advanced in her adult life, maybe, you know, reaching a point where it's, it's, she's older even than, than Jesus' incarnate, you know, body at this point. She's perhaps in her 40s or older. Uh, and so you've got sort of, some, to some extent, some, both ends of the spectrum. Interestingly enough, the woman who Jesus healed uh, with a flow of blood, she was ceremonial unclean. Guess what else makes you ceremonially unclean? Reaching out and touching a dead body. Jesus didn't have to touch this girl's hand, but he did it just like so many other miracles to show that he was higher and greater and his compassion was more important than whatever the letter of the law ceremonially was. The ceremonial law had passed away because the bridegroom was there among those at the feast, those who, those who were willing to believe and to trust in him. And so Jesus reaches out and he takes this little girl by the hand and he says, child, arise. We're told elsewhere of the Aramaic 
Talitha kume, I say to you, little girl, arise, depending on how you translate it, or simply, put most simply, child, get up or arise. Verse 55, and her spirit returned, and she got up at once. Now, to the Hebrew understanding, that word spirit and soul would be used often interchangeably. Spirit is the word uh, panuma, where we get, you know, a number of, whether it's spirit, wind, or breath, that would be, a, you know, if you have a pneumatic tool at home, it's that same root word where you're using air to, you know, fire a nail or to spray paint or whatever it might be. But that word panumos that, that indicated that the spirit, the soul of someone was often understood to be present when that person was drawing breath. All of a sudden, this little girl who had no heartbeat and was not breathing, her, not only spiritually her spirit returned, but it was evident to everybody else because all of a sudden that chest began to go up and down again. And all of a sudden, that heart began to beat. And her spirit returned and she got up at once and Jesus directed that something should be given to her to eat. The same thing Jesus does when he appears among the disciples resurrected. He eats some fish. That's really hopeful because I'm hoping in my glorified body someday in heaven to have fish on the menu. I'm a seafood fan. So if Jesus could eat it after the resurrection, I'm hopeful maybe we're going to have it in heaven. But Jesus commands, insists that they give her something to eat. Also, so we'd know she's not been raised up to be a ghost. She's not been raised up only spiritually and not physically, but she's been raised up to be as good as new. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. The last point tonight, our third character is a little girl who faced death too soon. Perhaps she thought she'd lost the fight, but she didn't know who was on the way. Perhaps she thought she'd lost the fight. We don't know how conscious, there's so many things we don't know, but perhaps there was a moment in time where she thought, well, I guess there's no hope. And she didn't know who was on the way. You know, your life, my life, we're called to have faith that walks through fear and allows us to weather the storm. And often when we're discouraged, often when we don't, you know, we find ourselves so overwhelmed by lack of understanding or otherwise just cynicism, fear, or lack of willingness to hope, usually to some extent it's because we don't remember who's on the way. And so for us, may we be people who look towards the Lord Jesus, remember who he is, what he's done, what that means not only for eternity but in our daily life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that for each one of us, Jesus has been on the way and is on the way and will continue to be on the way. Coming once for all mankind to be obedient to death, even death on a cross, so that those of us, just as the bronze serpent was raised in the wilderness, who would look on his sacrifice and believe will be seen as righteous and found as receiving the gift that only he can offer. And Father, in his leaving the empty tomb behind, raised to life eternal, the first fruits of the resurrection to come for each one of us. Lord, as we see the hope that is in our living Savior, Lord, would you remind us that Jesus uh, has been on the way, is still on the way, and will continue to be wherever our fear needs to be overcome by faith and wherever peace needs to reign in our hearts. Thank you, Father. We look to you and we, we praise you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.